You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to the Dogs Program, listeners. Uh, this is 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, and you're listening to the Defence of Government Schools Program. And we've been here for many years, and we're very, very, very grateful to all of our listeners who put in a donation this year. And we're especially grateful to Dale and her friends, her school friends, who really have dug deep. It's been a wonderful year for us. Uh, there's been some interesting material in the uh, Fairfax media, but we're not going to talk about that today. For example, up in New South Wales, there is uh, concern that some private school headmasters score over a million dollars per year, not to mention the 100000 in that they get in uh, bonuses. So one wonders what the bonuses are for. I think Jane Caro in her Twitter feed was talking about grifters. But um, this program we're going to have today uh, is looking at a lot of research that has recently been done, academic. And our first uh, article, uh, which Cheryl is going to bring to us, is research that has been done about students in rural areas and an attempt to understand why it is, even when you think about their socioeconomic status, they are still falling behind their urban cousins. So over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. This article is entitled Australian Students in Rural Areas Are Not Behind Their City Peers Because of Socioeconomic Status. There is something else going on. And it was originally published in The Conversation and written by Philip Roberts. International and national tests show rural students on average do do not do as well at school as their city peers. This includes lower scores on NAPLAN and the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA. For example, in the 2018 PISA test, Australian students outside cities performed at lower levels in reading literacy, mathematical literacy and scientific literacy. Their average performance was between two-thirds of a year and almost two years behind metropolitan students. Most of the studies looking at rural students have focused on primary school students and most conflate rurality with low socioeconomic status. In our new research, we looked at New South Wales Year 12 high school certificate results, higher school certificate results, sorry, in standard and advanced English and maths. We controlled for students' social background characteristics to test if it is a socioeconomic status, SES, or a rural location that impacts student results. 
SES measures a parent's level of education and so indicates a student's familiarity with finishing school, going to university and other forms of educational attainment. We studied more than 73,000 students and 772 high schools in New South Wales in 2017. The study included all high schools, government selective and non-selective, Catholic and other independent schools using data from the New South Wales Education Standards Authority. All Year 12 students living in outer regional remote and very remote areas who completed Standard Mathematics General 2, Advanced Mathematics, Standard English or Advanced English were matched to students with the same characteristics who completed the same subject in major city or inner regional areas. These subjects were chosen because English is mandatory in the New South Wales HSC. Each has an advanced and standard offering, and both English and maths are powerful for determining post-school options. For example, advanced English and mathematics can potentially add more to a student's ATAR final rank than standard English and mathematics general too. Matching means they had the same gender, the same level of parental SES status, and they attended a school with the same level of school SES and school sector. We found that when SES is controlled for, rural students still achieve lower results than non-rural students in HSC, English and Maths. Put another way, students attending schools in rural locations, regardless of their parents' SES levels, the average SES levels of their peers at school, their prior achievement in NAPLAN and school sector, achieve at a lower levels than their non-rural counterparts. In mathematics, the difference in average marks was approximately 6% and approximately 3% for advanced and standard English. There was no significant difference for mathematics general too. Although not directly tested in this study, it is likely different and unequal opportunities around learning that are playing a role here. This includes a lack of access to some subjects in rural areas and teachers teaching out of their fields of expertise and training. In a previous study, we found if you live in a regional area, you will have less access to subjects that will help you get to university and more likely to be offered vocational subjects. Rural students also have different everyday experiences from city kids. This is often overlooked in the school curriculum, especially in the HSC, where all students do the same content and exams. In the past, we had the County Areas Program to help schools make curriculum more meaningful to rural students. But more recently, we have focused on greater standardization in search of excellence. This new approach ignores how students come to school with different experiences, skills, and prior achievements. Research shows cultural context has an impact on student achievement in standardized tests such as NAPLAN. This is because familiarity with the examples used in questions clouds a student's ability to demonstrate the skill being tested. For example, having to write about a beach when you have never been to one. Earlier this year, a Productivity Commission review showed no significant improvements have been made in enhancing equity since programs like Country Areas Program were abolished in favour of more standardisation. We are still using the same approach of statewide exams as we were 50 years ago. It is assumed that if everyone does the same thing, then this is fair. The relationship between student background, their location and end of school achievement has not improved much in the time, regardless of more students finishing senior secondary school.
This one-size-fits-all approach ignores the fact that rural students have different experiences from urban children and often their teachers. At this moment, the federal government is developing the next National Schools Reform Agreement to start in January 2025. This agreement between the federal government and all states and territories is designed to lift student outcomes and has a huge role in shaping how education works in Australia. The next agreement can make a big difference for rural students. Firstly, it needs to focus on achieving equity in access to senior secondary subjects for rural students. Secondly, it needs to develop a program to help teachers make curriculum more meaningful and introduce fairer means of assistance. Oh, sorry, of assessment. We can do much better than the examination-based system developed half a century ago. Yes, we definitely can do much better than that. Uh, great article. Back over to Eugene. Oh, thank you so much, Sorrel. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break now. And after that, Dale has got a very interesting uh, piece of research to report on also. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program because, you know, we're being fairly academic this afternoon, but uh, we think that it's very interesting material. And now Dale is going to give us the findings of a gentleman called Michael Schiffer, PhD candidate from Murdoch University. He actually works for the New South Wales Department of Education. But um, his, re his report on conversation, the conversation is a, a university-based blog, if you like, or website, which uh, gives you very interesting research. Uh, the head of his research is the type of school does matter when it comes to a child's academic performance. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. The type of school does matter when it comes to a child's academic performance. School choice is enormously important for families. Some spend tens of thousands of dollars per year to send their children to private schools in the belief that this will provide a better education and future. Figures released in May 2023 noted Australia's private school enrolments have grown by 35% over the past decade. We also know families seek out areas where there are high status public schools. Recent research has argued once you account for socioeconomic factors, private schools do not outperform public schools. In other words, the school does not really matter. It's a student's family background that counts. My research, that's Michael Skiffer, shows the type of school does matter and the way Australia's school system is structured is especially unfair on students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Why school segregation is a problem. Decades of research has shown how family social background is a strong predictor of a child's educational outcomes. Parents' education and occupation are associated with student learning differences in Australia and many other countries. 
government governments across the world have responded with policies directing resources to students from disadvantaged backgrounds. An example is Australia's Gonski School Funding Model, which targets additional resources to First Nations, rural and remote and low socioeconomic students. But the issue of school segregation is largely ignored by Australian governments. School segregation occurs when socially disadvantaged students are not evenly spread across schools. Rather, students tend to enrol in different types of schools according to their social backgrounds. This means advantaged children are concentrated in certain schools and disadvantaged students are concentrated in others. Research has shown the social background of a student's peers influences their learning just as much as their own social background. So when disadvantaged students are concentrated into disadvantaged schools, they are doubly disadvantaged. Australian secondary schools are the ninth most socially segregated among wealthy countries. We also have the fourth highest proportion of private schools. Last year, my colleagues and I examined the effects of school segregation on students in Australia. We used NAPLAN results from a nationally representative sample of students in years five and nine to explore the relationship between average school socioeconomic status and an individual student's academic growth. This involves students from public, private and Catholic schools. We also examined the effect of parental education and occupation, Indigenous status, language, gender, school sector and the academic achievement of peers on a student's academic growth. We found a school socioeconomic status predicts the likelihood a student will achieve minimum literacy and numeracy benchmarks. This means a disadvantaged student attending a disadvantaged school is unlikely to achieve minimum academic benchmarks. The same type of student attending an advantaged school is twice as likely to reach minimum standards. Attending a disadvantaged primary school costs half a term of learning per year for every student. This grows to one term of learning per year in secondary schools. The stronger high school effect is likely due to higher levels of segregation at the secondary level. That is, more students go to private high schools than private primary schools. This shows going to a private school can benefit students' academic performance when it has higher concentrations of socioeconomically advantaged students than nearby public schools. The outcome is a schooling system that excludes many students from academic excellence. In other words, Australia's schooling system exacerbates social inequality. The federal government is currently reviewing school reform approaches as part of the next national school reform agreement, which is due to begin in 2025. This is an opportunity to begin to address socioeconomic achievement gaps caused by Australia's schooling system. This could be achieved by the National Assessment Program, the body that runs NAPLAN testing, reporting the impact of segregation on learning outcomes. The My School website could publish how well schools are contributing to education of disadvantaged children in their communities. Students disadvantaged by Australia's schooling system should also be compensated for the public policy failure. 
students enrolled in schools with high concentrations of disadvantaged students could have their tertiary entrance ranks increased. A similar policy occurs in some US states where students in racially segregated schools are guaranteed places in high status colleges. But much more substantial reforms are needed to ensure every school is playing its part in educating all young Australians. This would require schools to be representative of their communities in proportion to their public funding. Secondary private schools receive 80 to 90% of the government funding public schools receive. They should enrol a similar percentage of the disadvantaged students that nearby public schools enrol. Government regulation of enrolment and exclusion procedures should also remove discrimination against poverty, religion, disability, gender and sexuality. Some of the highest performing education systems in the world are also the most equitable. No education system has achieved excellence for all students by separating them by family backgrounds. Australia's schooling system requires substantial structural reforms if it is going to lift the achievement of disadvantaged students. Back to you, Jean. Well, yes, that's very interesting, isn't it? Australia is really an outlier in the Western democracies for the level of segregation that we have. Anyone would think that we were a thoroughly class-based society. Well, we're certainly, uh, as far as our education system is concerned, trying to make ourselves that way. It's like going back to the 18th century, isn't it? But unfortunately, this continues on to Australian higher education. And after the break, we've got another very interesting article uh, from Michael Wesley, who was in writing in The Guardian this week. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. We hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're going to higher education now. We have a new voice for you. We have Andy. So Andy is going to uh, give us this article on Australian higher education has grown, but elite universities still favour the privileged. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. So this article was published on Monday the 19th of June in The Guardian and is written by Michael Wesley. Australia now has an opportunity to broaden access to university for disadvantaged groups in society. But as we work towards an Australian universities accord at the end of this year, we face formidable obstacles. Over 50 years, Australian governments have been trying to increase the number of disadvantaged Australians attending university with scant success. Even more galling, the general expansion in the number of Australians attending university has had the perverse effect of increasing rather than decreasing the stratification and inequalities within tertiary education. Traditionally, there have been two arguments in support of expanding access to university. One is that more tertiary educated Australians will help expand and transition the economy. The other is that the economic and social mobility that university education brings should be open to all Australians. 
Before the Second World War, Australian universities were the preserve of the wealthy. Less than 0.2% of the population held the university qualification. Both the economic and equity rationales saw the steady expansion of the number going to university after the war, an expansion in scholarships, the creation of dozens of new universities and colleges of advanced education, the proliferation of professions that required a university qualification. By 1949, university attendance in Australia had tripled. By 2022, 49% of Australians between 25 and 64 had a tertiary qualification. But while an increasing number of Australians were entering university mid-last century, it was increasingly clear that the most marginalised and disadvantaged in the community were not. Stratification of the Australian university sector is driven by students and parents as much as by the universities. The Whitlam government's introduction of fee-free university attendance was motivated by a strong social justice rationale, making university available to all Australians by removing financial barriers. The result was a surge in university attendance, but by the early 80s, governments were facing the problem of unmet demand. Australians who were qualified to go to university exceeded available places. It started to become clear that the abolition of fees by the Whitlam government had not caused the huge rise in underrepresented groups at the universities that had been expected. By 1990, the Labor Education Minister, John Dawkins, having observed that significant barriers to inclusion remained, committed the government to changing the balance of the student population to reflect more closely the composition of society as a whole. His plan specified six disadvantaged groups as the focus for inclusion strategies, setting proportional representation targets for several. People from socio-economically disadvantaged backgrounds, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, women, people from non-English speaking backgrounds, people with disabilities, and people from rural and isolated areas. Where Whitlam's attempt at social inclusion had failed, so did Dawkins. 20 years later, the Education Minister Julia Gillard commissioned former University of South Australia Vice-Chancellor Denise Bradley to again review the higher education sector. Bradley reported that the participation of disadvantaged groups in higher education had been static and falling over the last decade. She wrote that, Barriers to access for disadvantaged students include their previous educational attainment, no awareness of the long-term benefits of higher education, and thus no aspiration to participate. Gillard's efforts at inclusion prompted by Bradley's review were no more successful than Whitlam's or Dawkins. The demand-driven system that Gillard introduced resulted in a 70% increase in domestic undergraduate enrolments between 2008 and 2019, but achieved almost no proportional increase no proportional increase in disadvantaged groups' attendance over that period. Students from low socioeconomic status backgrounds went from 15.8% to 16.8%. Disabled students from 5.4% to 7.7%. Indigenous students from 1.5% to 1.9%. Regional students declined from 20.7% to 19.6%. Remote students stayed at 0.8%. And students from non-English speaking backgrounds declined from 34 to 3.2%. Despite decades of government and university efforts to shift them, the patterns of correlation between socioeconomic advantage and university wealth and ranking have stayed stubbornly persistent. Some analysts argue that the addressing of inequality has been too incremental, fiddling at the edges rather than addressing a systemic problem. Others point to the heavy reliance on tertiary entrance scores to select students as a barrier to access for underrepresented groups. Numerical tertiary entrance scores provide a transparent, objective and comparable basis for selection, but they also conceal student advantage and disadvantage. 
And as competition intensifies for prestigious degrees in universities, tertiary entrance scores increase to manage, to manage demand, thereby privileging those with the economic, social and cultural capital to ensure their success at school. An even more invidious and unintended consequence of the expansion of access to university has been the creation and exacerbation of the stratification and inequalities within our tertiary education landscape. As the Australian university sector has expanded enrolments and degree possibilities, it has become increasingly vertically differentiated. A significant reason is the role of higher education as a, a status good, a class of acquisitions, the value of which is created by their scarcity. As economist Fred Hirsch pointed out, expanding access to a status good creates a hierarchy of value. More people may gain access to university places, but then some university places come to be seen as more prestigious than others. This has driven and been reinforced by the rise of global university rankings, which motivate universities to invest in attributes that enhance their prestige value, research intensity, facilities, exclusivity, scholarships. The vertical stratification of the Australian university sector is a process that has driven by students and parents as much as by the universities themselves. As universities invest in their own prestige competition, students compete more intensely for degrees from those institutions or fields of study seen to be more prestigious and useful. These are the challenges the Education Minister, Jason Clare, and Accord Review Chair, Mary O'Kane, now face in their mission to expand access to Australian universities. They confront a formidable problem that has defeated generations of education policy reformers before them. It demands big ideas to solve the inclusion conundrum. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I noticed that he didn't mention that round about 1984, Mr Dawkins uh, did away with free education at universities and introduced the HECS scheme. Yeah, I was, which, I was there. Uh, which, yes, <laughs> I remember. Yes. Sure, I suppose you were one of the protesters, were you? Yes, I was. Yeah, yes. yeah it, was a, it was a big sea change. There was only 14 years in which um, we had free education uh, in Australia, and this is this is why we are fighting. Of course, we fight for free, secular, and universal education for everyone. But the really surprising thing is that one of these prestigious universities, their vice chancellor, in the last week in the Fairfax Media in the Age from Melbourne University, was saying that we should have free education again. Is that interesting? free education at the tertiary sector. I'm sure that he wouldn't uh, bite the state aid uh, uh, bullet for the, for the secondary and primary, but uh, I thought that was a very interesting um, uh, sideline. Thank you, Andy. That was great. So we'll have a bit of a break now and we will come back to um, have a look at what the Labor Party has been up to, some of their ideas. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. We are still listening to the Dogs Program and here's something that was uh, in the press uh, 
a Labor MP calls for nuclear reforms to stop international education providers teaching poor quality courses. This is uh, the real underside, the underbelly of privatisation of education. Thanks, Jean. So this article is written by Caitlin Cassidy and it is entitled Labor MP Calls for Nuclear Reforms to Stop International Education Providers Teaching Poor Quality Courses. Labor MP Julian Hill has called for nuclear reforms to weed out poor quality vocational educators who he says are exploiting the system as a low-rent work visa. He has proposed suspending international student intakes for low-quality courses and preventing internal assessments. Hill, who was previously the Executive Director of International Education in the Victorian Government, is a co-convener of the Ministerial Advisory Committee interrogating international education. The Parliamentary Committee has heard shocking allegations of a vocational education and training vet providers gaming the system and working with unregulated international education agents to steal students from from prestigious public institutions for massive commissions, sell work visas and open ghost schools where students don't attend classes but still receive degrees. Speaking in Parliament on Monday, Hill said the international student sector was vital to Australia's prosperity, but radical thinking was needed to clean up the sector. The vast majority of the sector do wonderful things, but a minority of students, mainly in the bottom end of private vet, are only here to work, not study, he said. Our student visa must not be used as a low-rent work visa. Hill said Australia's future success relied upon quality education that had been compromised after a decade of drift and neglect, and the sector's social licence needed to be restored. He floated four options for reform termed nuclear in private conversations. Among them was revamping the entire accreditation framework for private vet providers to separate training from assessment, as is done in Year 12 certificates, forcing providers to reapply for licences and suspending enrolments in low-value courses and banning the payment of education agent commissions for onshore students. Most providers do good things, but there are a significant minority that are dodgy selling work visas, he said. In education, ASQA, the Australian Skills Quality Authority, inspect the paperwork and use that as a proxy for quality. Good quality private providers are despairing. They report that dodgy providers just get the students in, pop the exam questions on the board, and the students write them down and go back to work. Hill said dodgy providers couldn't be weeded out unless students were properly tested and the bar was raised to become an assessment provider. If we force the higher risk private vet providers to have their students externally assessed, then it would shock the system, he said. ASQA could rapidly put colleges selling dodgy qualifications out of business. With concern over the rapid post-pandemic growth in international student numbers, Hill said suspending enrolments to courses with non-vocational outcomes in which vast numbers of vet students were enrolled was controversial but food for thought. What benefit is Australia getting from tens of thousands of international students enrolled in certificates and diplomas in marketing, leadership and business, he said. 
There are few, if any, migration pathways. The courses are cheap and too many students are working, not studying. The inquiry has heard sweeping allegations of education agents acting as a Ponzi scheme by taking commissions of up to 50% to enrol students in courses and funneling them to lower quality private providers once arriving on shore. The broadly unregulated sector acts as a middleman to advise and recruit students from overseas. Hill said rapacious onshore agents were destroying the integrity of the sector by bribing and stealing students from universities to low-cost vet providers with kickbacks, discounts, and incentives. Hill said attempts at regulation had failed in the past because it's expensive and complex. But Parliament could ban the payment of commissions for onshore students entirely to wipe out the intermediaries. Regulating agents has become a question of how and when, not if, he said. Time to prune the tree to save the tree. Very interesting proposition by Julian Hill in Parliament there that Caitlin Cassidy has told us about in that article. Back over to you, Jean. Well, back in the day, of course, with the Colombo Plan, international students were here for free. But um, let's go international. Let's stay international. And Jeff will take us to the United Kingdom and the United States. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to mine, as usual, Diana Ravitch's blog, and she's an amazingly prolific uh, supporter of the public education network in the United States. And they have similar problems to the ones we do, where there are continual threats to public education from the onset of mainly oligarchs who are promoting vouchers and things like that in, in order to make money from education. And this is uh, from the June 18th. Uh, it's uh, its title is Ohio, Vouchers for the Rich. And Diana Ravitch writes, um, William Phyllis, founder of the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Adequacy, reports on the evolution of vouchers. Initially, they were sold as a way to save poor kids from failing schools, but now they are a subsidy for upper-income families. Um, Daryl Rowland, uh, ABC6 in America, and Fox News 28, tweets about vouchers. Daryl Rowland, a former Columbus Dispatch reporter, public affairs editor and senior editor, gleaning data from Howard Fleeter's June 23 policy brief on vouchers in Ohio. In a series of tweets, he sheds light on the trend in income level of voucher users. The data shows that the percentage of low-income ed choice voucher users has dropped from 32% in 2014 to 15% in 2023. That's uh, those who are on low incomes. So um, the state budget for fiscal years 23-24 and 24-25 will ratchet up Ed Choice voucher voucher expansion. Vouchers, by the way, vouchers are used uh, as a way of expressing choice so that people can take their money from public education and put it into private schools. Um, in the future, Ed Choice voucher users will mostly be in the higher income brackets Lower-income students were exploited by voucher advocates to get the voucher foot in the door. Universal vouchers will result in a higher private school tuition, which will eliminate voucher participation for nearly all low-income students. School funding numbers cruncher extraordinaire Howard Fleeter looks at Ohio's vouchers' two main findings. One, originally intended to help students at low-performing public schools escape Vouchers are now benefiting a growing number of students already attending private schools. Two, 
the percentage of low-income students assisted through these programs has significantly declined, while more students in wealthy families are accessing vouchers. Fleeter, a consultant for public schools groups, concludes that recent GOP legislative changes reflect a pronounced change in the focus of Ohio's voucher programs, from one of expanding opportunity to one where the state simply pays for vouchers for students whose families have already demonstrated that they have the means to afford private school. In financial year 2024, 2014, 35% of one Cleveland-style voucher programs recipients were from low-income backgrounds, but by financial year 23, this number had decreased to 7%. For another, Ed Choice, the percentage of low-income students receiving vouchers dropped by th- from 32% in 2014 to 15% in 23. So these vouchers are really hurting. Uh, the, well, they're basically just benefiting rich families um, who are already in the system, but they're using the vouchers to offset the price of their uh, education in these um, supposedly better schools, but they're not better at all. Um, anyway, we're going to do what we often do, which is nip across the ditch. And uh, whilst I was going to report on the uh, upcoming strikes by the National Education Union in UK, who are still striking to try and get fair income for teachers, there's a profound under funding of the public system and the state school system in the UK. Um, But instead, I found a particularly interesting article from the National Secular Society there, which is um, an interesting finding that faith schools foster unfairness and discrimination. This is by Stephen Evans and it's posted uh, the 20th of June. Um, He says, Fairness and freedom should be central to state education. Recommendations from the UN Child Rights Committee lay bare faith school failings, argues Stephen Evans. On any given Sunday, countless numbers of non-believers dutifully traipse off to church, not in search of sermons or salvation, but school places. The bizarre phenomenon of parents attending church to secure a place at their local school stems from around a third of state-funded schools being faith schools. Many of these may, when oversubscribed, give preferential treatment to children from families deemed sufficiently pious. Faith-based admissions exist to ensure religious organisations running state schools can serve their own, but the system also benefits the pew-jumping middle class, who are willing and able to game the system by feigning faith to gain a place in a sought-after selective school. It's often claimed that the church schools deliver better academic outcomes, but the evidence shows that any educational advantages are small and are explained by factors around pupil intakes, such as religiously selective admission arrangements. Religious selection acts as a form of socio-economic selection, and it's this, rather than a religious, religious ethos, which compels many middle-class parents to turn up at a church to gain a place at a well-performing school without paying for a place at a private school. On your knees, avoid the fees, as the saying goes. One such parent who admitted to doing this appeared on a local BBC radio debate I took part in last weekend. 
He explained that unsatisfied with the schools in his catchment area and unable to avoid private school fees, he attended services at an evangelical's church once a month for five years to gain the necessary points for a school place. He stopped going the moment his child's application was submitted. That parents are willing to jump through such hoops, hoops to get their child into a particular school is a sad reflection on our state school system. Ideally, all children would have access to a good local school. By siphoning off the children from wealthier families at the expense of the rest, faith schools exacerbate the attainment gap between non-selective and selective education. Gaming the system may be morally dubious, but rather than blame parents, we should reserve our indignation for a system that allows taxpayer-funded schools to operate discriminatory admissions and select pupils on religious grounds. The Equality Act exemptions that allow faith schools to give preferential treatment to worshippers legitimises faith-based discrimination. Thirteen years after the passing of landmark legislation to protect people from unfair treatment, Religion's influence in state education is ensuring 19th century style religious discrimination remains a feature of 21st century schooling. Making religious leaders the gatekeepers to publicly funded services has other unintended consequences too. Whilst Church of England and Catholic schools usually require church attendance to gain the school's blessing, religious requirements in the oversubscription criteria of some minority faith schools' policies impose extreme religious ideology on families. National Secular Society research revealed how some religious authorities use faith-based admission requirements to control how their students' families dress, whether they can use the internet, what they can eat, and even when they can have sex. Surely it's time to consign this form of discrimination to history. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, CRC, certainly thinks so. In its concluding observations to the latest periodic examination of child rights in the UK, the CRC called on the UK to guarantee the right of all children to freedom of expression and to practice freely their religion or belief, including by repealing archaic school worship laws and preventing the use of religion as a selection criterion for school admissions. Those campaigning for a fairer and more inclusive school system often ignore faith schools and focus instead on grammar schools. The government has admitted it does not know how many schools apply religious discrimination in their admissions, but it's clear that far more school places in England are subject to religious selection than academic selection. So if you want to achieve a fairer and more inclusive education system, faith schools are the obvious place to start. That means standing up to entrenched religious interests by insisting the schools we all pay for are openly, open equally to all children without regard to religion or belief and that they respect and protect all their people's freedom of religion or belief. Despite the lack of evidence that faith schools do this any better than other schools, faith school enthusiasts like to wax lyrical about the values they instil in children. Honesty, kindness, compassion, justice. But the values that they actually entrench in society are privilege, unfairness and discrimination. One Conservative MP characterised the UN's recommendations as intolerant and an attack on people and institutions of faith. 
Vested interests lined up to echo those sentiments. But tackling human rights violations and discrimination takes aim not at religion, but at the negatives that flow from organising public services around it. A pluralist society should both tolerate and celebrate all forms of diversity, but that diversity should be represented within schools, not be a marker of division and a basis for educating and segregating children. Adopting the United Nations Child Rights Committee's recommendations would go a long way to putting things right. I think that was an excellent article, personally, um, and really that sort of clear dis uh, description of discrimination in the guise of uh, religious uh, um, you know, uh, indoctrination you know, should be... Um, should be applauded. I mean, I think that we should be uh, supporting that uh, sentiment that the United Nations Child Rights Committee recommendations would go a long way to putting things right. Um, anyway, with that, I will go back to you, Jean. Well, we're getting to the sector where we're being a bit more positive now. And uh, the, the AEU of Victoria has had a bit of a win. Dale's going to tell us about it. And then we're going to have the Great State School. Thanks, Jean. This article is titled... AEU Victory for Public School Staff in School Camps Time in Lieu Dispute. The Australian Education Union Victorian branch has achieved a significant win that will see the Victorian government providing an additional $130 million for school budgets over four years to resolve the school camp time in lieu off-duty dispute heard before the Fair Work Commission. This win means that public school teachers and education support staff attending a school camp overnight will be regarded as being at least on call for eight hours and receive a payment for this time. In addition, for the remaining hours on a school camp, outside of the overnight hours and normal hours of duties, employees required to attend as part of the student supervision ratios will accrue time in lieu for being either on call or performing duties. Critically, the Victorian government has provided the additional funding schools will require for these overnight payments. These arrangements, including the overnight on-call payment, will apply to all school camps other than overseas school camps or any period of a school camp occurring during a school holiday period. This important win has been achieved as a direct result of the actions of AEU members, including those who lodged local grievances, and builds on the improved entitlements achieved in the school's agreement last year, said Victorian branch president Meredith Peace. It means that when a teacher or education support staff member is required to attend camp overnight or to meet student supervision ratios, they cannot be deemed as to be off duty. The significant new funding will reduce the pressure on schools to provide time in lieu to staff where they are required to work outside of their normal hours of duty, while enabling schools to plan their camps programs with certainty. The outcome respects and recognises the huge contributions teachers and education support staff make to enable students to attend overnight camps. The AEU Victorian branch lodged a dispute with the Victorian Department of Education in the Fair Work Commission after it issued school time in lieu operational guidelines stating that teachers and education support staff required to end 
school camps could be off duty overnight and would therefore not be eligible for the time in lieu entitlements provided for in the Victorian Government Schools Agreement from 2022. The AEU successfully settled the dispute with the department and has won funding for an on-call overnight payment funded by the state government for public school teachers and an education support staff for each night on camp, which will apply from the 1st of January this year. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is North Melbourne Errol Street Primary School. Kimberly Fernandez is the EAL teacher at North Melbourne Primary. She wrote this statement for the North and, no- and West Melbourne News Winter Edition. Nearly half our students at North Melbourne Primary School are plurilingual. Amazingly, more than 40 languages or dialects are spoken in their homes. This makes our school a very diverse community. After an initial assessment by classroom teachers, we offer students extra English literacy support through our English as an additional language classes. English as an additional language classes are usually about eight children, enabling a genuine student to teacher focus. They involve activities such as science experiments, puppet plays, arts and crafts, cooking, exploring books, and singing action songs. As the school's specialist EAL, that's English as an additional language, teacher, I simply love my work. I found my niche here after 25 years in schools, teaching at every level from prep to year 12. I work closely with classroom teachers and give regular feedback on the students' progress. It's a team effort as the teachers themselves are skilled at maximizing children's language acquisition. Science experiments work really well with EAL students as they are so visual. The students love an activity that shows the action of colour mixing as they investigate the hydrophobic properties of dish detergent in milk. A sure sign of children enjoying learning is when they can't wait to get in the classroom. When I round up the EAL students for class, I always hear excited shouts, race you to the EAL room. Once inside, the highlight is our pet, Yabby. The children named him Yod, and he's been with us since the start of the year. He lives in a little aquarium and enjoys eating yabby pellets and lots of fresh waterweed. The students love to say hello to him as they peer into his tank. Where are you hiding? Hussein asks each day. Pearl is intrigued by his ability to shed his skin. EAL students try their hand at a science experiment. You're so big now. When will you lose your skin again? is a real joy to see EAL students progress as they gain language skills. Some arrived with very limited English and were unable to share their needs and ideas. Now, every day, I hear their happy voices as they play and laugh and learn. One popular activity asks students to tap into their five senses to improve their writing. They are offered a tasting plate with foods such as lemon, honey, grapes, tomato and Vegemite. Their reactions to tasting were priceless. What is this? Vegemite? Oh, I hate it. 
For little Daria, a recent arrival, the taste of chicken and lemon was a poignant reminder of home. In my country, we make lots of foods with lemon. My favourite is lemon and chicken, but I don't know what to call it in English, she says. What a delightful insight into the EAL classroom over there at North Melbourne Errol Street Primary School. Now I have some facts and figures for you from Akara. This school is in the inner western suburbs and services many families with a generous income and has a high number of multilingual children. The school has 807 students in total. Its ICSIA value is 1,144 and most of the students that attend this school, 64%, um, have parents that earn an income in the wealthiest, the top quartile of uh, income in Australia. Uh, There are 63% of the students come from non-English backgrounds attending the school and there are eight Indigenous students that attend the school. The Australian government provides only 2.2 million and the state 6.7 million. The parents paid 534,000 in fees and raised 14,646 in 2021. It costs only $10,804 per pupil to educate a child at this school. Congratulations, North Melbourne, Errol Street Primary School. You are our Great State School of the Week. Well, congratulations to the North Melbourne community for getting their new school. It's been a long battle and they've won it. And now Dale has got a few thank yous. Okay. And now I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who donated during Radiothon and pledged on behalf of the DOGS program. Thank you so much. I'd just like to go through the names again. Thanks to Ollie from Melbourne for $40. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Spiros Skaftouros from Williamstown donated $50. Thank you, Spiros. Also, I'd like to say a huge thank you to some of my old schoolmates. We got in touch because there's a bit of a reunion happening up there in Rockhampton for Glenmore State High School. And kindly, some of my old schoolmates have donated. So a huge thank you goes to Audra Bolton, who's in Gracemere now uh, for $30.00. Huge thanks to Teresa McNelly. So nice to hear from you for $50, who's out in Millman now, which is not far from Rockhampton. Uh, Also, massive thank you to Katrina Rutherford, who donated $50, and she's up in Cairns now. So thank you. I cannot express how grateful I am for your support to the DOGS program. So grateful that all my old Glenmore State High School mates have kicked in and helped the dogs stay on air for another year. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for that. Now, uh, I'd like to say thanks to Casey Noodle, who's given us $50. She's in Benalla, a young mum, and she's able to support us. So thank you very much, Casey. Thank you to Ray Sabine from Glenroy for $50. You know who you are, and I appreciate you. Uh, Also, the dogs have kicked in for $1,000, and that's from the people who've donated to the dogs over the year and so a huge thank you to all of those contributors we could not do this without you another thank you goes to susan sharp from caulfield south for 25 dollars 
And another big thank you goes out to John Kent from Watsonia South for $50. Thank you so much. And I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Creatures of Habit Bar Room in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, for hosting my 50th birthday party, which was also a benefit gig for the Dogs Program. So thank you, Creatures of Habit, and thank you everyone who threw into the tin at the party. We ended up raising $208 for the Dogs Radiothon. So thank you, Creatures of Habit, and thank you to everyone who came to the benefit gig. And we've met our Radiothon target, and it's all thanks to you. So we cannot express our gratitude. You've helped us stay on air for another year. You've supported independent radio and independent media and our gratitude knows no bounds. Well, thank you to all our listeners and our supporters. The cause for public education is still very, well, it's never been as important as it is now. So we'll be here again next week for that reason. But for today, it's bye for now.